1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: You're listening to Talking Landscape podcast which explores the big issues surrounding placemaking, identity, nature and the environment through conversations with leading landscape architects. I'm your host Paul Lincoln, editor of Landscape, the journal of the Landscape Institute. In this episode we're looking at how public space has been designed by and for men and how this can have potentially deadly consequences for women. Joining me today are Eleanor Trenfield, Jade Gotto and Sophie Thompson. Sophie leads Public Realm LDA Design has been involved in the design and delivery of Liverpool streets, squares and green space for the past 20 years. I'll be speaking with Eleanor and Jade in a moment, but first I'd like to welcome Sophie. When Sarah Everett tragically didn't make it home from visiting a friend, multiple protests followed. This led to a conversation about women's safety in the public realm. Many people expected this to be a pivotal moment. However, according to a YouGov poll earlier this year, two-thirds of women still don't feel safe in the built environment. Sophie, in the autumn edition of Landscape, you focused on the safety of women in the public realm. Why is this such an important issue?
3: It's such an important issue, Paul, because beyond the most extreme cases of violence, we know that concerns around personal safety are an everyday experience of women and girls. For example, women take certain routes, steer clear of certain areas, or even don't go out after dusk. And the knock-on effects of that are quite profound. So, for example, physical and mental health might be affected, because if you start to withdraw from going out in favour of more of a housebound life, Then it affects levels of physical activity that leads to stress, anxiety, and then also concerns for public personal safety start to also have further effect, reducing opportunities for employment, say, or schooling, socialising, recreation. So it's a societal problem that needs action. And as master planners and designers, you know, that have influence over the landscape and public realm, we have a huge responsibility. We need to properly understand how the decisions we make and advice we give to our clients might affect the safety of everyone, and in particular women in the public realm, and ultimately create more inclusive, safe and equitable cities.
2: You quoted some statistics, very striking statistics, that a staggering two-thirds of women surveyed said that they often don't feel safe walking home at night and more than half of women avoid being out at certain times to reduce the risk of harassment or sexual assault. How does the design of our streets affect how safe women feel?
3: So many factors contribute to feelings of safety. I think one of the main factors is actually about activity and more people. So that's important mix of uses. So, you know, right from sort of planning new communities, how you mix uses, the treatment of the edges, the scale of the street, natural surveillance, uh, the frequency of side streets and pedestrian connections and cycle connections. The presence of nature, seating, lighting, wayfinding and so on. So there's lots of factors that contribute to uh, the the feeling of safety uh, relating to the built environment.
2: You've designed some very central streets like Alfred Place Gardens in Camden. This is uh, a street that used to be just a a through road, a rat run, uh, just off the Tottenham Court Road. It used to be um, quite dark uh, certainly may well have felt quite dangerous, and it's been transformed. It's won a number of awards recently. Tell us a little bit about your thinking behind the design for Alfred Place Gardens. So,
3: uh, Alfred Place runs perpendicular to Store Street. It uh, was a sort of a quite an everyday sort of London street. It was traffic dominated. It was very much a place to move through rather than a place to spend time. And, you know, the actual frontages facing uh, Alfred Place are also quite sort of office in nature. So at certain times of the day, you know, weekends and sort of evenings, there was not a huge amount of, of natural surveillance. So we worked with Camden Council to look at how we might sort of develop a vision for, sort of closing the street to actually introduce a more nature-based and people-led solution. So introducing new types of activities. So, for example, play, planting, which is biodiverse, uh, clear sight lines, comfortable seating, a range of different seating types. You know, And lighting has been a really key factor in that as well. We've also introduced pop-up power, so there's an opportunity for kiosk and activation. So whilst we can't change the physical edges to the street, although we're hopeful that now we've improved the street, actually, some of the edges that, that might actually become active that were previously inactive because we've created that value, you know, actually it has had a profound effect. In, in some ways, urban streets are are less challenging, I think, than some of the kind of residential streets you get in more suburban areas, because often you see examples of streets comprising back gardens or substantial setbacks. So there's con- continuous blind walls, fencing, or hedges. So there's no natural surveillance or no um, vis- visible front door presence, and they're designed again for vehicles as places to move through and not spend time. So. There's very limited opportunities for play, for sports, for seating, communal dining. So people are not encouraged to spend time there. And also there's a lack of, often a lack of choice of routes or logical connections and so on. So I think there's not a one size fits all solution here either. I think you have to take each place and, uh, uh, and approach it differently.
2: One interesting aspect of Alfred Place Gardens is the use of lighting. It's quite um, domestic, almost residential, quite low levels. Um, Say a word about the significance of lighting in creating places that feel safe at night.
3: I think you're absolutely right. We worked closely with Michael Grubb's studio on the lighting. So actually bringing in specialists, um, I think, is really important. Who really understand about looks levels and, you know, so you can achieve a place that is compliant. So on Alfred Place, actually, the lighting The way it's set is very much about um, lighting that can light people's faces that can it's directional and it's a very warm light as well it's very welcoming and people have described it feeling like a lighting you get in your lounge you know when you've got your you know and it's quite cozy and I think people feel safe and secure in there and that is really important but it is quite a specialist area of work actually to get this right and to get the scenes right so the sensors that can detect the different light levels and adjust the light levels accordingly.
2: Another aspect of Alpha Place Gardens is the use of play spaces. There are three or maybe four separate play spaces. Um, There also appear to be many different activities taking place side by side. Again, explain some of your thinking that went into the design of this particular place.
3: Yeah, it was really important, actually, that we took quite a holistic view to play within Alfred Place Gardens. So, for example, whilst there is three distinct areas where we used... Um, more probably traditional type of equipment that, uh, that people can play on. And it tried to appeal to a range of ages. Actually, play has been incorporated as a very core part of the scheme. So, for example, there is a sinuous sort of sculptural seating edge along the whole length of Alfred Place Gardens, where actually somebody, a young person, can run up and down and play their stepping stones, So people are encouraged to use the planting as well as this play. And I think, you know, again, it's well-researched. When there is play, people often, you know, features of play positively showing this is a place welcome for children. It feels safer and, again, creates another layer of use. And the more people and more activity you can get into these spaces, you know, the safer they generally feel.
2: In your article... You talk about different sector approaches to safety, including the police, counterterrorism, and security professionals. For example, on some sites, seating is removed to try and prevent loitering. However, on other places, designers are trying to encourage people to dwell in order to make areas safer. Why have people come to such different conclusions on how to make places safe?
3: I think that certain professions with the best of intentions have a very single focused approach and often they work in silos. So their guidance is often focused on security rather than safety, which indeed is very different. And the advice can be slightly misinterpreted uh, as a one size fits all solution. Therefore, because, because of that, they perhaps do not fully appreciate the knock on effects of advice given. So I'll take an example. So the police is secured by Design's Homes 2019 guidance states very clearly that the development is not to be compromised by excessive permeability by having too many routes to prevent burglars making easy getaways. So somebody reading this guidance, say a master planner planning a new residential mixed use um you know uh, environment would take that and think right okay i'll design accordingly yet actually for women in particular and others having a choice of routes at night can make a difference between a place feeling safe or not so i think good design requires listening to a wide range of voices and designing different perspectives and multi-layered objectives therefore solutions require nuance and ultimately balance needs
2: to be struck Now can I welcome Eleanor and Jade. Eleanor is founding director and Jade is an associate consultant at EDLA Landscape Architects. In the article in the most recent edition of Landscape, you've explained that almost all elements of modern life have been designed around the idea of, to quote, the average male. New research over the past decade and increased awareness over the significance of gender bias have revealed that this poses a very real threat to women's safety. Up until now, most clinical research has been based on the assumption that the male can serve as representative of the species. This is despite growing evidence that women exhibit symptoms differently and have different reactions to drugs. Similarly, since the 1970s, crash test dummies based on male build and weight have been used to evaluate the safety of new vehicles. This is despite women making up half of drivers and showing an increased likelihood of injury in like-to-like accidents. In the autumn edition of Landscape, you considered how different the world would be if women had played a more significant role in designing it. Eleanor, why is this an important issue for designers today?
0: Thanks, Paul. Um, it's a difficult issue to, to kind of talk about, and it's it's brilliant to see a whole journal dedicated to women and gender and landscape. So part of the problem is women don't like to be seen as complaining, um, or maybe have the confidence to speak out early in their careers for kind of fear of alienating themselves. And then men don't see it as an issue for them, um, and potentially don't want to say anything that could be interpreted as insensitive. But fundamentally, it's so important because we're designing spaces for now and future generations. Um, And what we design has a permanence. It's not a coffee coffee cup or a car or, you know, something that's transient. So yeah, it's absolutely fundamental that we're talking about it today.
2: Explain how gender bias presents itself in the built environment.
0: Perhaps if if we could talk about more kind of able-bodied without dependence bias, because I think that it's it's a broader range of people that are not being considered. I could share an experience where I've taken a train recently for example for example i had to take a train up to scotland from kent and i've recently had a baby and it was just quite an eye-opener for me because myself and everyone else with a pram or wheelchair were squeezed into the only accessible carriage by the toilets which is a fairly um, unpleasant location and just made me made us feel we were also fighting for the same space uh, made us feel just you know very subservient to the rest of the train community they actually locked my pram into a luggage area because there was no space for the pram in the carriage. And then I spent probably the last 10 minutes of the journey rushing up and down the carriages, trying to find someone desperately to open it before my stop. So I think that's just a, you know, a really good example of how unconsciously people just don't think about these things.
2: As landscape architects, how do you incorporate designing for women into your work?
0: I think at a basic level... It's designing features that mean a safer and more welcoming space for all. So, you know, things like sight lines, lighting, street trees, frontages onto the streets. But it's kind of more nuanced than that as well, because you also need to design for character and you have to balance up quite a lot of kind of competing issues. Things like lack of thought to lighting and locked public toilets, um, places that can be made to feel intimidating, such as narrow paths, where acoustics highlight the echoes of your footsteps or something that you really need to pay attention to as well in in designing spaces for women.
2: And the question for Jade. If we take the example of a public park, what might inclusive design look like? Or if we take the example of a residential street, again, what might inclusive design look like here?
1: As Eleanor said, I think there's physical things we can do. So, the sight lines, the low planting, well lit roots. We also kind of need to think about how these spaces are used by all groups. The Make Space for Girls campaign are very good on this, on um, how teenage boys and teenage girls use spaces. And if girls aren't thought about within the, the design process, it becomes by default a male space. What's really important is that women are at the table from the start of the design process. And it's it's not just having a kind of equal number of men and women at the table. It's about listening to the female perspective and experience. And I think that's probably the most important thing, because if you're not doing that, again, by default, it's going to go towards a male bias.
0: Just to make another point on that as well, in terms of designing new park spaces, a lot of that is linked to policy. So you've got um, policies that you need to comply with in terms of open space and play. And those place policies in local authority documents don't recognise the different ways in which boys and girls use play space or public space for that matter. So you're you're fighting against policy issues as well um, when you're starting to look at the design of these spaces.
2: In the article, your colleague, Georgia Timpson, said, and I quote, public realm needs to be designed so that women can be seen but not watched what does she mean by this and what might this look like
1: when you're in areas with higher footfall that are busier there's a a collective seeing so you're going to feel safer whereas to be watched feels more sinister it's often about the male gaze and it it gives you a feeling of vulnerability and a, a lack of safety so really they're two opposing atmospheres that you can find yourself in
2: And a question for Eleanor, is it possible for men to design effectively for everyone? And why does the makeup of design practices matter when it comes to creating more inclusive spaces?
0: Yes, possibly. But I think it's worth having the broader life experience and perspectives at the table. I think there's particularly an emphasis in architecture about the big idea, the big concept, the big master plan, the big ego. But I think that Designs can only be richer if we're all involved in all, all challenging ideas.
1: It's having a collaborative approach, and so I, th- I think women do have to be at the table. I don't think that men can design effectively for everyone. I think the female perspective and experience has to be taken into
2: consideration. The Matrix Feminist Design Cooperative, which operated in the 1980s and 1990s, famously highlighted how buildings and spaces can be sexist. An abiding image is of a woman with a buggy trying to navigate an underpass at Elliford and Castle in South London. Their pioneering work remains highly pertinent to this day. What progress do you think the industry has made since they were doing their work?
0: Just looking at the dates I think that's quite upsetting but we're still talking about the same thing and actually on our day-to-day lived experiences some of it isn't getting any better. There's there's often curbs that I'm walking along which have, you know, lampposts right in the middle of them or, you know, bollards that aren't very sensitively thought through. Um, we're definitely talking about it more, but whether we're making enough change is debatable. Um, I think the industry is definitely changing. And, but, you know, the time of my career, I've seen the the makeup of client teams um, and design teams change quite considerably to be much more broad in terms of diversity and uh, and gender. So. So from that point of view, it's you know very positive.
2: Jade, you said that if women were present in all the professions that created space, nature would have historically been much higher on the agenda. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Traditionally, the male narrative in urban design has often been about power and statement, and it's a fairly kind of capitalist stance. And the benefits of health and well-being and the sort of direct correlation to nature have been not seen as important and concerns about the environment have been secondary. Um, And today, I think we've got to this this point with kind of two paths on how we continue. And we're in this position, we're realising we have to take kind of drastic action to reverse the damage that we've created. And I believe that if women's perspectives have been listened to kind of throughout modern history, Um, the importance of nature, the protection of the planet, these would have all been elements that were crucial in decision-making.
2: Sophie, I wanted to ask you a question about another of the projects, which is part of the West End project. This is Whitfield Gardens.
3: Whitfield Gardens was a community garden that was, there was poor lighting, overgrown shrubs, lots of antisocial behaviour, and people didn't feel safe in it. It was not used, uh, it wasn't a democratic space, and... The redesign and implementation of a new scheme there working with the community and the community were very polarised. Some members of the community wanted all the existing planting taken out and almost like a sort of very hard environment that they could feel safe in. Whereas others really felt that nature was important and wanted lots of planting and actually... What has been tested to be successful is a variety of seating types and combinations, comfortable, accessible for all. We removed all to changes in level so you can always allow pushchair and wheelchair access so no one's excluded. Warm lighting, clear thresholds of public and private, Um, And nature, Nature nature-based solutions are really well researched to increase feelings of safety. Flowers are really important, but planting should not create hiding places. But what's been interesting, I think, as well is, is actually watching the space evolve. And actually, it's highlighted to me the importance of maintenance and management of our public spaces, because actually, sadly, what's happened over time as well as, and this project was open probably 18 months, maybe two years ago, is it's almost been a victim of its own success. There's a street food market nearby and there's often, you know, the litter bins sometimes are overflowing. There's huge maintenance pressures. Graffiti has actually taken hold in certain areas. And again, you know, this then starts to feel like it's not a safe space to be in. Whilst it's still well used, you know, and actually, you know, um, Camden are working really hard to keep on top of the maintenance. That to me is a really important thing. So it doesn't just stop when a project finishes on site.
2: And I wanted to ask you a question about maintenance because it's a space that is sandwiched between two coffee shops. There's a Costa coffee on one side and a Starbucks on the other. And it's interesting to note that if you drop a coffee cup in a Starbucks or if you leave litter in a Costa, someone will remove that litter as soon as you leave your seat. The place will be maintained continuously. However, if you do the same thing in a public space, like Whitfield Gardens, that won't happen. So my question is, if a public space is busier than a coffee shop, and if it is creating a genuine public amenity, should it not be maintained with the same level of efficiency as a coffee shop?
3: Yeah, I think you raise a really good point there, Paul, and I think... um... You know, as as the industry is aware and, you know, there's been a lack of funding from central government and local authorities are having to deal with very, very tight budgets for the maintenance of public realm. The budgets are absolutely woeful. Um, so I think there needs to be a greater commitment to actually maintaining these. And I think there are opportunities for potentially new types of models the Fitzrovia the business improvement district in the area have street wardens and again they've been trying their best to try and sort of spend time and be, be, be visible in the space but again their resources are limited and, you know, and actually the community's involvement is really important on this, you know, so it's a sort of financial thing. And ultimately, you know, there needs to be a commitment to that. But there also needs to be a sense of ownership and, you know, for communities to take ownership. For example, you know, the Friends of Fitzrovia, you know, the gardens, you know, the, you know actually having legitimacy to feel like you can actually garden here. It's OK. You know, this is a shared endeavour.
2: I'd also like to close by asking you all a question about edges and gates. Um, parks were traditionally uh, surrounded by railings public squares were often gated Um, a number of new developments have absolutely moved away from this Um, the Olympic Park does not have gates or railings Uh, Elephant Park one of the newest parks to open in London uh, has no railings at all and the landscape of the park meets the housing development very comfortably. Can you say to what extent, and I'll ask you this, Sophie, first of all, can you say to what extent having or not having gates, edges, barriers uh, has an impact on women's safety?
3: Personally, in an ideal world, I wouldn't want to see anywhere gated. I feel like public space should be accessible um, at all times and it shouldn't feel private and i think that it is obviously a symptom of you know um you know again security and and you know and you know fortunately where where we are um i think there's it's a complex picture obviously the olympic park was built at a certain point in time and is evolving as a new neighborhood so the edges are evolving all the time and you know and it was trying it was designed with the intention of being open but actually a future community coming and the edges maintaining it's also an ecological landscape so obviously you've got sense of ecological habitats. so lighting and how you treat lighting is really important there because you don't want to affect the you know the wildlife by the river for example so you know decisions were taken to light clear routes through that to create safe zones through it so you know and there is continued ongoing research and analysis and feedback to improve, you know, how the spaces feel, sense
2: of activity and how their edges interact. And again, the same question to you, Eleanor, you're designing a number of significant projects, none of which I believe have gates or barriers. What 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 is the role of not having gates and barriers in terms of safety for women?
0: I think it's really important to have Edges that are transitional and blurred. I think if you put in gates, you keep the existing community out. And I know that, you know, um, it's quite common, particularly in central London, I think, with the privatisation of our public spaces. On other projects that we're working on, for example, we're working on a strategic scheme in, in Birchington, which includes a huge area of new country park. Um, and we did a lot of consultation with the local community to include um, new cycle routes through connecting from this part of the area to the coast. That that point you made, Paul, about who picks up the litter Well, if you have enough people that have ownership and and love the space um, and the community that engages with the space, they will pick up the litter. I pick up the litter as I walk down my high street if I see things, you know, um, flying about. And I'm sure a lot of people do as well because we care about where we live.
2: Thank you very much for joining us. We will continue to explore some of the topics arising from the latest edition of Landscape in the next edition of Talking Landscape, uh, which will be broadcast four weeks from today. If you haven't had a look at it, please read the current edition of Landscape, the Journal of the Landscape Institute, and you can get a free copy by clicking on the Landscape Institute website. Thank you.